Let's then to our sermon text for today, Genesis chapter 14. <clears throat> As we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis and more recently the life of Abraham, or as he's originally called, Abram. Uh, we saw first in chapter 12 that he was called out of his, the land of his kindred and given great promises by God, promises that God would bless him in fellowship with him, that God would give him land, God would give him offspring, God would give him, uh, would, would through him bless the nations. Then we found that Abram sojourned in Egypt, like his descendants would later. And again, like his descendants, there would be plagues upon Pharaoh and his household, and they were brought out of Egypt with more enriched than they were to begin with. And how Abram then returned to the promised land. Then he, last week we saw in chapter 13, uh, made peace with Lot as disputes began between their herdsmen, and Lot went his way to the valley, the Jordan Valley, near uh, Sodom, Um, and uh, being somewhat similar to how Israel came to the promised land and went around the descendants of Lot, Moab, and Ammon, and, and kept their peace with them, knowing that the Lord would provide an inheritance for his people. Now, of course, what happens after that in the history of Israel? After they go around Lot, it's time for battle, right? Well, interesting here in the account of Abram as well. It is time for battle. I'm going to begin by reading chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. We will make our way through the whole chapter, though. But as we look at this passage, I think the main point here is, as Israel was supposed to be when it came to the land, that looking at the example of Abram, that you are also to be strong and of good courage, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, We ought to trust in the Lord, his provision, his blessing, and to be strong and of good courage. But let's begin with uh, the situation described, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Kedorlaomer king of Elam, Tidal king of Goim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitmen pits, as the, king, 
And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for your sacred oracles, your revelation to your people of uh, your truth, your deeds, your works. We know that these things took place thousands of years ago, and yet they were written by your inspiration for our learning. And so we pray that you would enlighten us by your word and spirit, that you would comfort and direct us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin here at the beginning of this passage, these first 12 verses, with the victories of the four kings. There are four kings, there are the five kings. It's easier to refer to them that way than to list them every time I mention them. But the four kings were in the north and east of the land of Canaan. Uh, The king of Shinar, that's kind of the old word for Babylon or Mesopotamia, what's now Iraq. There's Alassar, we don't know exactly where it is, but could be uh, somewhere to the north, like in Syria or Turkey. Uh, Elam, which was a powerful country at that time and is basically in western Iran, on the other side of Iraq. Then there is uh, Goyim, which really just means nations, uh, but some think maybe is the Hittites or some uh, people uh, to the north. But these were in alliance, and Ketaleomer, even though he's not mentioned first in the first time they're listed, definitely throughout the text, he takes a leading role uh, in uh, leading these four kings against the peoples of Canaan. Then there is the five kings, uh, five kings of five cities. Uh, There's these five kings, four kings of these nations. There's these five kings of these cities. uh, Probably had some dominion of the territory around them, but uh, those were the cities of the plains, the city of the valley, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, which we'll find is renamed Zoar in a few chapters from now. Uh, So that's why it's in parentheses, you know, the one that's actually now called uh, Zoar. All four of these five cities... All of them except Zoar were later overthrown in the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah tend to be, it seems to be, the more significant ones, the ones that are mentioned more, but all four of these cities um, were mentioned as Canaanite cities in chapter 10 and then later are going to be overthrown by God's judgment. They were in the region of the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. That's the way it is now. But it was at that time a lush valley, a lush, fertile place, a rich place, and of course also therefore full of plunder for these kings. This text tells us that the four kings had conquered the region. They had uh, received dominion over this region. They had come earlier, and for 12 years, these cities had served uh, the four kings. They probably paid tribute uh, to demonstrate uh, that submission. In the 13th year, though, the cities rebelled, which probably means they stopped paying that tribute. And so in the 14th year, the four kings lead their forces down into the land to assert their superiority, to 
get what they thought they uh, deserved, to, to conquer, uh, to plunder, and they swept through the region, defeated many peoples, and last of all, the five kings of the valley. There's other peoples that are mentioned here in verses 5 and 6. The Rephaim, Zuzim, and Amim, they were giants, or peoples of giants, people that were great and tall and mighty. Uh, they lived on the east side of the Jordan, just like the giant Anakim, who lived on the west side of the Jordan. In fact, they're, they're probably local names for roughly the same uh, people. And the Horites were the original inhabitants of Edom that lived southeast of the Dead Sea, and the Amalekites lived kind of south of Canaan. In fact, they're the ones, when Israel comes out of Egypt, they, they attack them right away and have a lot of enmity towards Israel later on. Now, what are we to make of these first 12 verses? I think, first of all, we ought to look back to Noah's prophecy and forward to Deuteronomy 2. All right, so first of all, think back to Noah's prophecy about Shem and Ham and Japheth, really Shem and Japheth and Canaan. Remember, Canaan would be the servant of servants, and and he would serve uh, Shem and, and Japheth. Well, we're talking about the Canaanites, these cities in the plains that are explicitly mentioned in chapter 10 as Canaanite cities. And the leader of the four kings, Kedor Laomer, was the king of Elam, which chapter 10 says was a Shemite people. Uh, Elam was the, the firstborn, in fact, it seems, of Shem. So what do we see already in chapter 14? That prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled that uh, a descendant of Shem is Uh, has dominion over the cities of Canaan. Now, what we're going to find is that a new Shemite is going to start to take to the field. That will be Abram. But even before that, there's uh, a fulfillment of this prophecy at work. But also look forward to Deuteronomy 2. That's the place that a lot of these people get mentioned again. And that is, as their Israelites are about to enter the promised land, um, there is a description of what God had already done by that point. And how these original inhabitants that Ketolaomer defeats had been destroyed and defeated by the descendants of Esau and Lot. All right, so we're jumping into the future a little bit. But the point was that how much more could the Israelites be confident that God would give them victory if these terrible and gigantic you know, people that were so fearsome had already been overcome by the Lord through, um, through the Lord by other peoples? The Horites were destroyed and dispossessed by the Edomites, the Amim by the Moabites, the Zuzim by the Ammonites. A, ref, a remnant of the Rephaim survived in Bashan, King Og of Bashan, and the Israelites under Moses will uh, defeat and destroy them. And so they could be confident that the Anakim, that they were so scared of when they first sent the spies into the land, that through God's power, the Israelites would overcome them as well. And they did, except for a small remnant of the Anakim that survived among the Philistines, like Gath. And that's where Goliath would come as one of the last of those giants. But all, before all of that had happened, God had already shown in Genesis 14 that he could grant victory over the giants of the land, um, and he did so at first through Kedorlaomer. God can still overthrow giants. I think the next thing that we should note from these 12 verses is that Sodom and Gomorrah, already described in chapter 13 as great sinners before the Lord. And God uh, acts. Even before he utterly destroys the cities, he sends this judgment 
upon the cities. He often works to escalate, to draw people to repentance, to give them a chance, but to uh, correct and judge uh, for their, these sins. And so he first sends this destruction upon them. And even Lot is caught up with it, even though Lot was a righteous man uh, dwelling in that area, that he too, you know, none of us are uh, blameless before God. God is, uh, can, can correct us, can send trials upon us. Uh, perhaps this was for Lot's good, that he would not become too attached to his possessions and the uh, sins that were displayed in Sodom. But he's caught up with them and brought into exile with the people of Sodom. But the last thing we should notice, or that we're going to notice now, is that this brings a question into the story. What is going to happen of God's promise regarding Abram? Because Lot was not just a righteous man, he was also Abram's nephew. Abram's nephew had been taken into exile as a captive. The one who dishonors Abram, God would curse. What will happen now that his family has been touched and swept up? by these mighty kings. And that's what we're going to find in the next part of this chapter. Let's read verses 19 through 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people." We find here then, secondly, not only the victories of the four kings, but the victory of Abram. Abram the warrior. Abram the chief. And I think what we ought to see in this passage is an example of faithfulness and of courage. Think of how this would have been an example for that generation of Moses. As Genesis was written and delivered to them with the rest of the five books of Moses, that they would have seen their father Abram being an example of courage and of being more like Caleb and Joshua rather than the spies that gave a bad report and were afraid to follow through and were afraid of the people of the land. Do not be like those Israelites who cowered and feared, who did not remember the great works of the Lord and turned back in the day of battle, but rather like father Abram who did not fear to muster his men and go in pursuit to save his nephew, Lot. Consider three ways that we find Abram an example here. First, Abram was ready. Notice it says that when the messenger came, where was he? He was dwelling by the oaks of Mamre, and we learn that Mamre was a person. Mamre was an Amorite, and he had two brothers, Eshcol and Aner, And these were allies of Abram. Literally, they possessed a covenant with Abram, is what it says uh, in the Hebrew. They had an alliance. They had a covenant. It's useful for understanding what does the word covenant mean, to see its use not only with reference to God and man, but between men. What did that word mean? We'll find other examples in Genesis 
of the word covenant being used to describe alliances and treaties between people. It's different when God makes a covenant with man because it's not between equals. It's between a great Lord and his, uh, his people, his vassals. Uh, his, or between a, a husband and, and a wife is another form of covenant that our covenant with God is compared to. But uh, here we find that Abram had good relationships with his neighbors, that though he was a stranger among them, though he differed with them in many ways, he yet was at peace with them and, in fact, was, in, was an ally of them. And so we'll find at the end of this passage that these three brothers had gone with Abram, probably bringing their forces as those committed by this alliance to uh, fight alongside with him, that they followed Abram's lead. Uh, that he had been a good neighbor, a, a, just as he had been peaceful with Lot and dwelling next to him. So uh, he had kept, uh, as far as it depended upon him, uh, peace with all. And this enabled him to be ready for such a time to give help when trouble came. Also, he had 318 trained men in his house ready to go to war. He didn't have to start training them then. They were already trained. The young men uh, in his household, uh, he had a very large household at this time, more like a little kingdom, in fact, uh, but it was under his authority, and he had managed his household well. He had prepared uh, the young men for battle. He had trained them. We can learn from this that you also should prepare yourself to help your brother, to help your relatives, to help your neighbor. Uh, prepare yourself to be a, a good help, to love your neighbor as yourself. Maintain good relationships with those around you. Whether we're talking about what happens if society breaks down or whether we're talking about when you need a ladder, it's good to have good relationships with your neighbor. Uh, this is important to have uh, good relationships with those who are around you believer and unbeliever alike. Also train yourself and be trained and train others in useful skills that are useful to help others, whether uh, to defend your house, but also to, uh, to do other things that are useful and helpful uh, to those who are around you. Those who are leaders of countries like Abram should prepare their country to fight in defense of themselves or their allies to train young men like Abram. Uh, but every believer also should be ready for spiritual conflict against the world, the flesh, and the devil. To be prepared before the time comes, to be trained. Abram would also train his household in godliness, to walk in the way of the Lord, we'll find in chapter 18. Train them in, uh, in good doctrine, in the practice of virtue, as well as useful skills to help others. So put on the armor of God, the salvation, the righteousness, the truth, uh, the readiness given by the gospel to withstand the devil. Abram was ready. Second, Abram was faithful. Remember what happened to Lot and Abram? There had been a little tension between them. They had had to part ways. Lot went and he chose the good land where there are great sinners. Abram could have thought, well, he's getting what he deserved. You know, he, he decided to go that way. It's on his head that all these things happened. I'm, I'm going to let all of that happen, and I'm going to just stick to myself. The, those armies didn't touch me, uh, so I'm, I'm going to just let things go. 
But no, he hears the news, and he acts instantly, and he goes to his rescue, and he travels miles. He catches up with them in Dan. I don't know if you know geography here, but Dan is the far north of Canaan, and he pursues this army actually further north of Damascus. He's going miles in pursuit of his nephew, which is called several times here also his brother. Uh, he was literally his nephew, but uh, his brother as, as, as a relationship between them, um, kinsmen, as it's translated here. He was loyal. He was faithful. And so imitate Abram by also demonstrating faithfulness. You appreciate it when God is faithful to you, that he has a covenant with you, that he will be faithful to deliver you. So also be faithful to others. Be faithful to your promises. Be faithful to your spouse, to your household, to your relatives, to your neighbor, to the one who dwells trustingly beside you. Be faithful to your brethren in Christ who are in the unity of the Spirit. When they encounter physical danger or spiritual danger or suffering, do not think, oh, they brought it upon themselves. Let them go and face the consequences. That's none of my business. Am I my brother's keeper? That's what Cain said, right? Abram sees that he is his brother's keeper, or at least he's responsible to help him. When you get the call, whether you get the call that your friend is stranded on the side of the road or find out that your friend is being taken captive by false teaching or by sin or by uh, despair, you know, to be there for them as a friend, as a kind uh, help unto them, just as Abram delivered Lot from the clutches of Ketelaomer. Thirdly, Abram was courageous. This was a mighty army of four kings of nations that had been undefeated as they conquered giants, they conquered the rich cities of the valley, they conquered the desert peoples, uh, and they were victorious. And now Abram leads what is a large household, but a small army, 318 men, along with some allies, as they go off, maybe riding on camels to catch up with them, to chase down this great army. But he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't lose his head. He keeps cool. He knows to surprise them at night. He divides his army. He takes them by surprise. He puts them to flight. He doesn't give up. He doesn't let them regroup until they're out of the land. He chases and pursues them and recovers the possessions, and he brings back Lot and the people of Sodom and their possessions to bring them back all the way down south to where the Dead Sea is now. He was courageous, did not swerve from the course of duty, and by God's grace, he defeated the army. He defeated the army that had defeated the giants. He defeated the army that had defeated the Canaanites. And how much of an example ought this to have been to the Israelites to go into the land, though they seemed weak, that they had God with them, and how much ought it therefore to be an encouragement to his people today to be strong and of good courage. Be courageous in the path of duty. Do not swerve from doing what is right out of fear that you might be ridiculed for it or fear that there might be those who are stronger than you. Stand firm for Christ. We, we sing dare to be a Daniel, right? Dare to be an Abram. Think of this with respect to the world, the flesh, and the evil one. To strive against them courageously, to not lose hope, 
but to endure by faith in Christ, to fight the battle on your behalf and for your brother's behalf, uh, to seek to deliver the captives, to release the captives of the evil one, to seek to conquer the land, the promised land. We don't do it today by the sword or by the gun, but rather by the proclamation of the gospel, by uh, the spiritual weapons that we have in Christ to indeed advance the kingdom of Christ, to release the captives of sin and Satan. So be courageous, as Abram was, to go up against the foe. Now, these things can be hard. Are you courageous? Are you ready? Are you faithful? Maybe sometimes by God's grace. Maybe other times you might feel, no, I was kind of afraid and I I chickened out. No, I I could be more faithful. You're right. I, I fall short of the glory of God. These things are hard and we often fall short. But the text goes on. We have an example here in Abram to live up to, to imitate. But we also have the grace of God, which is demonstrated in the blessing of Melchizedek. So let's read verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, sorry, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. We find here that uh, God's grace and faith in his grace is both what sustains us in the course of duty and also is the reason by which we can have hope to stand before God, that our sins are forgiven through a priest who intercedes for us. The blessing of Melchizedek, that we ought to trust God and in his anointed one. So here we have two kings that meet Abram. He's coming back from his defeat on the way back from up north, on the way down to the bottom of the valley and in the south. In the middle, there's a town called Salem, which later would be called Jerusalem. Uh, and in fact, the psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 76, it, meant, it calls Jerusalem Salem. It does that in a couple psalm, psalms. Uh, they come near Jerusalem or Salem. And two kings come out, the king of Sodom, who's traveled up there to meet him, but also the king of Salem, named Melchizedek. Now, more briefly, let me talk about the king of Sodom. Abram refused to receive goods from Sodom. By right, he had a share of the spoil. The spoils of war were his. Um, The king of Sodom, maybe not quite as generously as he could have said it, 
says, all right, give me my people. You can have the goods if you want. He's ready to bargain here with Abram. But Abram says, I don't want you to say that I'm indebted to you, that I got rich because of you. Uh, You can have all the goods back, only what my men have been eating to sustain them, and I'll let my allies take their share. I'm not going to restrict them. Uh, But uh, go and take take your people, take your goods uh, back. That wasn't why Abram had gone off to fight, to, to take the goods of Sodom. Lot was delivered. God was, was caring for Lot, and he also spared the peoples of the cities from destruction for a time for Lot's sake. Uh, when people are, are spared by God's mercy, they ought to improve upon it, to make use of it. We'll find that Sodom and Gomorrah only became more culpable, not improving uh, this, not using this opportunity well to repair, repent, but rather that they continued in their ways. But let's give, as uh, the last thing here, attention to Melchizedek, because we'll find, as we've read already, Psalm 110, even in the Old Testament, says Melchizedek is uh, a type of Christ, one who prefigures Christ, that Christ, the promised Messiah, would be like Melchizedek, that the Lord had sworn and not changed his mind, you are a priest, who is he talking to? my Lord, the one who will sit at the Father's right hand, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Levi, uh, a different order of priest. He will be like Melchizedek. And the epistle to the Hebrews explains uh, what that means and how that points to Jesus Christ. That uh, not only Melchizedek, but also the way he's explained in Genesis, where he appears just kind of out of nowhere, it doesn't recount his genealogy, doesn't recount his parents, doesn't recount his death. He's just there, that this is a type of Christ who uh, literally does not have beginning or end. He is a priest forever, and he lives uh, to save us to the uttermost. That uh, in that way, Melchizedek resembles, as it says, the Son of God. And so, Melchizedek prefigures Jesus Christ in several ways. First of all, Melchizedek was king, just as Jesus would later be king. And a certain king. He was king of Salem. Of course, meaning Jerusalem. And Jesus established, you know, his reign with his death and resurrection there in Jerusalem. Um, but also Salem means peace. And, he, and the epistle to the Hebrews mentions that. Jesus would be a king of peace. His realm would be one of peace. Peace of conscience. Peace with God. Peace among one another. Uh, the Apostle Paul says the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And righteousness is the other thing. Melchizedek, the word, the name, means Melech, king, Zedek, uh, righteousness, king of righteousness. And that Jesus would be a king of righteousness. Jesus would be righteous. Jesus would share his righteousness with us that we might be righteous. And he would lead us in ways of righteousness, subduing our hearts within us so that he would be a king of righteousness. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And as Psalm 110 says, Jesus would be a victorious king, in some ways being both like Abram and Melchizedek, a king who would lead his people to victory, having all power, making his people a willing people, ready to serve him and to follow him. So Jesus would be a king like Melchizedek, but also Melchizedek was a priest, a priest of the Most High God. Here was one who continued to follow the one true God, set apart from all idols as the possessor of heaven and earth, the one who created all things. And he was a priest. 
He here was a non-Levitical priest of the true God, without background or ending described, prefiguring Christ, who would be priest forever, who would be risen from the dead, and who would never die, not like the Levites who lived for a time and then died, but one who would live forever to save us to the uttermost, who always lives to make intercession for you, for me, for all who believe in his name. Like Melchizedek, Jesus would not be descended from Levi, but he would be greater than Levi. Levi was yet unborn. He was in Abraham, as it were. And Abraham, uh, who is his priest? Melchizedek was his priest. Thus Christ, who is like Melchizedek, supersedes the Levitical priesthood. He, he supersedes its system of sacrifices and rituals. And he establishes a new and better covenant and its administration. Uh, he he fulfills the types and shadows. He is himself the sacrifice that he offers to save us from sin. Once offered, not like the repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament, which were types and shadows and reminded the people of their sins, but rather offering once offered of his own self to, to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified by faith in him. And so Melchizedek prefigured a new and eternal priesthood that even in the Old Testament they realized a new priesthood would be needed after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, one priest. Jesus would not set up other priests. He would not need to be replaced by other priests. The Roman Catholic Church errs in setting up a new priesthood to offer sacrifices. You know, sometimes people talk about how the Reformers talked about the priesthood of every believer, and they did talk about that. But even more... They talked about the priesthood of Christ and how that is what we ought to look to for our salvation and not the work of any man. Also, a third way that we find a correspondence, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine for Abram, presumably for those who are with him. He's coming back with his troops, with the captives released, and Melchizedek produces bread and wine for them. They're doubtless hungry. You know, some of them have been eating from the spoils, but he brings refreshing bread and wine for Abram. This was a hospitality, it was a kindness, it was a practical help. We ought to show hospitality, certainly. But I think there's more to it than that. It's also a symbol of what Christ would give to his people. Do we think of bread and wine ever showing up later in Scripture? Uh, They are appointed by Christ as symbols for his body and blood that he would give for the life of the world, a symbol of his grace, the life that he gives uh, in his own sacrifice of himself for his people. Fourth thing we find is that Melchizedek blessed Abram by God Most High. He blessed Abram, now blessed be Abram by God Most High, and then also blessed be God Most High who has delivered the enemies into your hands. He's interpreting the events. This is a victory of Abram, but by the grace of God, God is the one who delivered these enemies into your hand, and blessed be you by God most high. God had made Abram's name great. Now even among the nations, Abram would be known as a powerful figure, elevated by God and his blessing. God had promised that uh, he would 
make Abram a blessing to others, and he in fact was a blessing, that he would curse those who dishonored him, and now he had delivered his enemies into his hands. God was being faithful to his promises. And so Melchizedek blesses Abram by God most high, and Abram's children by faith are blessed through Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that the blessing of God comes upon us. Jesus Christ bore the curse for sin, that he might remove it, and in, so that the blessing of Abraham would come upon those who believe in him. When Christ blesses, he actually blesses. It is a blessing of God and not simply a desire for one. Christ removed the curse and blesses us. And through the blessing of Christ, we overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, this was also a priestly act. Uh, The Levitical priests would bless the people, we find in Numbers. But here, one greater than the Levites, Jesus, one typifying Jesus Christ, blesses Abram and his people. Lastly, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything, that is, a tenth of the spoils of war. Abram had received this increase. He's actually going to forego uh, receiving the rest, but while he has it, he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek. Again, a priestly act, because in the Old Testament, the tithes were given to the priests, and so he gives this tenth to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Again, affirming the superior priesthood of Melchizedek, also Abram recognizing God's blessing, that he is the one who has given him this victory, and so he gives a portion of it back through um, the, the priest to uh, respond with gratitude. It's also the earliest reference to the tithe as a principle of proportionate giving to God and to the ministries of his church. Uh, this would become more detailed in the Old Testament uh, laws, uh, ways that it would be used to sustain the, the priesthood and the Levites and their work that would be done. In the New Testament, some details would change, but a principle of regular giving as well as special uh, giving for the ministry of the Word and for the ministry of mercy uh, continues to be something mentioned several places in, in the New Testament. And so Abram uh, sets an example here, but also is recognizing the blessing of God uh, through Melchizedek uh, that we ought to give to the Lord Jesus Christ as we recognize that it is through him that we are blessed. So receive and rest upon Jesus Christ. He is the king and the priest of all Abram's children, all of those who are the covenant people of God. God has appointed a king and a priest for us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As king, he makes us willing followers. He subdues our hearts and brings us out of the dominion of sin. He rules and defends us. He extends his kingdom. He overcomes his enemies, restrains and subdues uh, his enemies even under our feet uh, in a spiritual way. He uh, continues to protect us that we might be preserved to the end. And as priest, he reconciles us to God by his sacrifice of himself and his continual intercession for us that we might be acceptable in God's sight, that we might be blessed by God, that you might be able to come to God, being comforted by the fact that uh, though you fall short, though you sin, there is Jesus Christ the righteous who has uh, propitiated the Father, uh, reconciling you to him, and who even now 
intercedes for you so that you and your imperfect service might be pleasing to God, and that you might serve him with uh, the smile of his countenance upon you, that he has made peace, and he is even there today, so that you might come to the throne of grace to find help in time of need, that you have a priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, be of good courage. Be ready, be faithful, be courageous, through faith in Jesus Christ. It is by faith that his people have been made strong, who have turned foreign armies to flight, who have endured persecution, who have persevered to the end. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we might continue to follow our Lord and to be of a help to our neighbor, He is the priest forever and a victorious king. So let us imitate Abram, the man of faith, as we follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your abundant mercy to us in supplying for us a mediator that we might be made right with you that we might enjoy your blessing and favor, and that you have shown this love for us, even while we were sinners, by sending your Son after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever and a king, now at your right hand. We pray that you would advance his kingdom, that you would release the captives, that you would make your people uh, strong and of good courage uh, to uh, follow you, uh, to do your will, and to persevere to the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.